Welcome to Alec Across the States. I'm your host, Dan Reynolds. Today we're going to be discussing a very particular but very important aspect of school choice, education savings accounts. Whereas many of our listeners know what school choice in general is, they might not know the particularity or exactly what the idea of an education savings account is and how it can benefit them and their state. To discuss this, we have three education experts joining the podcast. First, from the Heritage Foundation, we have Lindsay Burke. She is the director of the Center for Education Policy at Heritage and is the Will Skillman Fellow in Education. Lindsay, thank you so much for calling into the podcast. Thank you for having me, Dan. Of course. And we have Marty Lucan, who is EdChoice's Director of Fiscal Policy and Analysis. Marty, thank you so much for calling in as well. Pleasure being here. And last but of course not least, we have our own at ALEC, Scott Kaufman. He is the ALEC Director of the Education and Workforce Development Task Force. Scott, thank you so much for calling in and most importantly, setting up this entire conversation. Thank you, Dan. So to get things started, I began the podcast conversation around the idea that many members or rather many folks who listen to our podcast, many of our listeners, they probably understand the idea of school choice, but they might not know exactly what an education savings account is, which is often initialed as ESA. So I just want to make sure our listeners know that in case we jump down a trail of saying ESA, ESA. But to get us started, can you talk to our listeners about ESAs? What are they and how do they work? That's that's a great question, Dan. ESAs are kind of the new kid on the block in terms of school choice policy. But there's something that really emanated from the philosophical framework that Milton Friedman laid in 1955 when he wrote his famous The Role of Government in Education. He outlined the idea of a school voucher of course, allowing families to choose a single private school of choice and to pay tuition with that voucher at a private school of choice. But Friedman was still thinking all the way up until 2003 about how he could refine that original school voucher idea. And he gave an interview to the publication Education Next in 03 uh, with a woman named Pearl Rock Kane. And in that interview, he said, well, why should you have to spend all of your voucher money at a single private school? Why not spend some of it maybe on a French class at one private school and maybe a math class at a different school? Why not have partial vouchers? And so when Friedman put out that essay, he basically laid the foundation for what became known as education savings accounts, right? So we can think about them as sort of these partial vouchers. So a family Uh, Arizona kicked it off in 2011. They were the first state to do it, but they said a family could receive 90% of the money that would have been spent on their child in their child's public school. It's just 90% of the state per pupil funding. So there's no federal money implicated. There's no local dollars implicated. And once they get that money, it goes into their education savings account, into their ESA. And they can then use that money to pay for private school tuition. They can pay for online learning, special education services and therapies if they need it. They can hire a private tutor, buy curricula, textbooks, whatever they need. They can completely customize their child's educational experience. And what is additionally unique about ESAs is that you can roll over any unused funds from year to year. 
is that it really enables parents to consider what future education-related expenses they might incur, and you can roll it over into a college savings account if you want. So ESAs really are this sort of piecemeal financing mechanism that enable families to completely and totally customize their child's educational experience. So how is school funding normally allocated and where is the money going right now that kids aren't in school? Sure. Um, Well, as you might imagine, school funding is highly complicated. But I'll just try to keep it simple uh, and use broad brush strokes. So public school districts receive funding from three main sources, right? Local revenue, largely from local property taxes, state revenue and federal revenue. And the shares of these uh, different sources will vary greatly across states, but also they'll vary uh, significantly within states across school districts. And then when we talk about the level of funding uh, nationally, public K-12 is funded at at roughly $14,000 per student, according to the latest numbers from the OSDOE uh, Department of Education. So today it's actually a little higher because those numbers are usually a few years uh, old. And then how that money is allocated to school districts depends largely on states' school funding formulas. Uh, It's up to school districts as to how those dollars are spread or targeted uh, towards towards their schools. So that's uh, just kind of a a brief overview of how funding works. Now, um, how the COVID-19 recession is affecting school finances is a question that a lot of people are struggling with. So there are some economists who are tracking uh, employment data uh, in real time, and they estimate that about 34 million people have lost their jobs since mid-March. So we're in a really very deep recession right now. Now, public K-12 so far, and so far being uh, the operative word, is in better shape than uh, many other areas of the economy that have been hit hard by this COVID-19 recession, right? Now, in K-12 education, what has a lot of people spooked is just all the uncertainty about uh, the effect that this current economic downturn is going to have on education, especially come fall. A lot of people are anticipating sharp reductions in tax revenues. Now, at the moment, there hasn't been much change to the current funding for school districts. At the moment, just given the timing of uh, the coronavirus and um, you know and, and the lockdown that a lot of places are experiencing, this happened towards the end of the school year, right? So at the moment, still bills are still being paid. Um, teachers and staff are largely being retained. Uh, they're still being paid. Again, what's at issue here is what's looming. What happens after the summer, right? When uh, schools reconvene for for a new school year, and State and district budgets are expected to be squeezed in just unprecedented ways. First, you'll have budgetary pressures, uh, not only from reductions in revenue, like sales tax and other taxes and and, and so forth, but we're probably going to see a migration of a large number of students from private schools into public schools, which we saw during the Great Recession um, back in 2008. And that's going to strain a lot of budgets. You know, across the country, the school budgets across the country. 
And this will likely happen as families are no longer able to afford tuition and as private schools see a drop in charitable giving that help families with financial need. And in addition to that, our public school systems have already been facing significant challenges that, that even predate the coronavirus recession. Public employee pensions is a big one. Um, this, that's a big challenge that uh, school districts have been facing, right? So consider like right before the lockdown, our country just got out of one of the longest economic expansions in history. And our pension systems should have been well positioned to kind of weather uh, the storm. Yet pension systems uh, that are sponsored by state and local governments um, have faced significant unfunded liabilities, uh, up to $4 trillion in pension debt, according to one economist from Stanford University, for example. And the COVID-19 recession just made this a lot worse. Um, you know, Moody's recently came out with a report showing that public pension funds have lost uh, up to a trillion dollars um, from investment losses. So in all, it's, it's not a rosy picture um, by any means. So clearly the way we're schooling is changing and obviously the recession and the COVID-19 pandemic are going to impact that. You know, we've talked about how private schools are struggling. People might send their kids back to, to regular school. There also might be reluctance by parents who had their kids in traditional schools to send them back for the time being or ever. Can the flexibility of an ESA help us navigate these kind of educational unknowns? And there's been a lot of talk of so-called emergency ESAs. And why is that so important right now? Yeah, so there's so much, too, that I'd like to re not respond to, but just sort of add on, I won't. But Marty brings up so many really good points about just a fiscal situation in which we find ourselves, in which schools find themselves right now. I mean, we're in a situation where state governments have effectively forced businesses to shut down during the pandemic. And so as Marty alludes to, that necessarily means that we will see a reduction in state sales tax revenue. And that state sales tax revenue, if you look at some of Marguerite Rosa's work at Georgetown, is a pretty large proportion of the overall revenue source that traditional public schools rely on. So just to back up a little bit, if you think about the sort of revenue pie for public education, we know that the federal government, federal taxpayers, provide about 8.5% of all K-12 spending. And then the rest, that roughly 90%, is about, on average, a 45-45 split between state and local revenue. So that state revenue, I think, to Marty's point, is where we really are going to see any reductions, uh, those really significant reductions moving forward. And a lot of that does come back to that sales tax piece. Uh, so it's just interesting to think about how schools might navigate this moving forward. Uh, one could argue that for a very long time, predating the pandemic, they have needed to get their fiscal houses in order to actually work on reducing school spending and allocating resources better in a way that actually meets the needs of students and flows to the classroom and focuses on teaching rather than non-teaching administrative slope. And then all of the pension issues that Marty brings up, right, where districts, you look at a, a state like Illinois and Chicago, districts have desperately needed over the past few years to move away from defined benefit pension plans to defined contribution plans, but 
have dragged their feet on doing that. So there have been a lot of budgetary issues percolating over the years that unfortunately the pandemic has just really hastened. So we'll, we'll see what that looks like moving forward. On the ESA front, for families, this is absolutely a solution. Again, what we're saying is, you know, you're taking a portion of just the state revenue, right? So a district could use local revenue if the district wanted to, but uh, I don't think we'll see that anytime soon. So this is a portion of the state spending. But what it would enable families to do is it would enable them to control the tax revenue that they supply to actually access the education to which they're entitled. So right now, families are paying taxes for public schools that they physically cannot enter. And so (laughs) they should be able, in an emergency fashion, to be able to access that money immediately. So a prorated amount of money for the remainder of the school year in an emergency fashion in the form of an ESA to enable them to pay for private virtual tutors, private online courses, to buy textbooks and curricula, to pay for diagnostic tests for their child, to pay for formative and summative assessments. They should be able to leverage that money to pay for whatever they need to ensure that educational continuity for their child. So there are quite a few states, now five, that have ESAs in place that are already functional. Those states, states like Arizona and Florida and Mississippi and North Carolina and Tennessee, they should go ahead and just expand access to their ESAs to every child in the state as a really important emergency reform. For the states that don't have ESA options in place, they should immediately move toward providing that. And so again, taking the prorated amount for the remainder of the school year and sending that money directly to families so that they can continue uh, in their child's education in a way that meets their needs. So that does bring us, unfortunately, kind of to the back end of our podcast segment today. But I do want us to take a moment. I always like to bring up who our audience is right here at the end. So the people who listen to across the states, by and large, are those who really care about state policy. They're either state policy wonks, they're state legislators themselves, maybe they're staffers, maybe they're just individuals who really care about local government and making sure that the solutions out there are the best ones they can be. So from your guys' perspective, what can state legislators, what can states be doing or what can they be rethinking about if they're listening to this podcast? What can they do to help move ESAs forward? Yeah, so I I don't know, Marty, if you want to weigh in on that, but I would say states need to take a piece of the Arizona slash Florida playbook on this. Matt Ladner used to say of ESAs, uh, which started in 2011, that we were sort of flying the plane as we were building it. Well, we're not, he's right, but we're not there anymore, right? We've really refined it. States have been doing this for a while now. They know how to do it. And so there is a well-defined playbook in place. So I would urge state lawmakers across the country to take a look at what Arizona's done. Uh, What's worked really well is having an incredibly light regulatory environment in place, enabling families to determine and direct what accountability looks like for their child having strong fiscal transparency in place for taxpayers, but otherwise really enabling the market to work. So free up those dollars, give it to families in the form of ESAs, and families will take it from there. Yeah, and just to um, add to what Lindsay mentioned, you know, we are in unprecedented times. Uh, Philosophically, I think that every dollar should follow the child to the educational environment um, that best 
meets their needs. But there are very harsh economic realities that states and districts are going to face right now, right? And without action, um, you know, things are going to get uh, pretty bad. State and local governments need to conserve resources for urgent priorities now. If you think about um, all the people that are unemployed, hungry, and sick. And this means that policymakers are going to need to find some creative ways to address these fiscal challenges. Uh, there's not going to just be one policy solution. But this is definitely where ESAs can come into play and, and help. And school choice programs that are that have operated um, for decades in all sorts of states, it's been shown that they do generate fiscal benefits for uh, different taxpayers, for states and local taxpayers and uh, school districts as well. So we know that these programs can be designed to uh, have a fiscal benefit and to free up resources for states. So ESAs can have a positive fiscal role to play as well. Um, they can have a positive role to play to help families access the kinds of educational services that their children need, um, particularly for uh, families uh, in need. But they can also help states deal with these looming uh, budget challenges today. Scott, what sort of ALEC educational resources can state legislators and state policy wonks or just individuals who care about education choice at the state level, um, what different educational resources should they be looking to from ALEC to learn a little bit more about this? And um, everything that Scott mentions, we will be sure to link into the show notes for all of our listeners. Well, Dan, thank you for asking. We have an, we have obviously have a number of uh, resources available, especially our uh, kind of COVID-19 related package of model policies that don't just include education policies, but kind of policies across all of our issue areas that are helping legislators kind of guide through this. We obviously have model policy language for ESAs that is modeled on the Arizona-Florida model. So that's a good one to look at. Definitely. And uh, But then there's also you know, aspects of digital, virtual, and homeschooling models to look at as well. Yeah, thanks, Scott. I knew we had so much. I just wanted to make sure our listeners knew because um, that's what Alex is supposed to be here, right? We're supposed to be an educational opportunity for individuals and state legislators that care about getting the solutions right. But with that, that does bring us to the end here. I've been your host, Dan Reynolds, of another great episode of Alec Across the States. I've been sitting down with uh, Lindsay Burke, who is the director of the Center for Education Policy and also the Will Skillman Fellow in Education at the Heritage Foundation. Lindsay, thank you so much for calling in. Thanks for having me. And I've been sitting down with Marty Lucan, who is Ed Choice's Director of Fiscal Policy and Analysis. Marty, thank you so much for all of your insightful commentary today. Thank you very much. And as always, on any education-focused topic here at Across the States, we have Scott Kaufman, the ALEC Director of the Education and Workforce Development Task Force. Scott, once again, thank you so much, and thank you for setting this whole thing up. Thank you again. And if you are interested in having your ideas featured on ALEC Across the States, do not hesitate to email us at acrossthestates at alec.org. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Across the States, the leading state-focused policy podcast presented by the American Legislative Exchange Council, the premier free market organization of and for legislators. To learn more about our work or to make a tax-deductible donation, visit alec.org. Tell us what you think on Facebook and Twitter at Alec States. The views and opinions expressed on Across the States are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the American Legislative Exchange Council.